I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of August 2021, and we are in the midst of what we are calling the Month of Moss. Uh, Essentially what this month has been, uh, and will continue to be, uh, is an excuse to explore the filmography of the actress Elizabeth Moss, uh, who is not an especially well-known quantity to me personally. Uh, however, my regular co-host Kyle, uh, who is unfortunately not able to attend today, uh, he is a big fan of hers, uh, such that he's kind of been spearheading this this whole idea of, of this Elizabeth Moss month. Um, So yeah, every week this month, we've been taking a look at a different film in the filmography of Elizabeth Moss, and uh, we started things off with a review of The One I Love from 2014, Uh, and this week, um, in case you haven't noticed, I am having to conduct this episode solo, so uh, to quote Rorschach from Watchmen, uh, I'm not in here with you, you're in here with me. Uh, so get get comfortable with my voice because it's the only one you're going to have this time around. But um, this week uh, we're covering a 2017 film uh, by the name of The Square, which is a Swedish film uh, directed by Ruben Ostlund. Uh, neither Swedish film nor Ruben Ostlund as a director are especially well known to me. Uh, however, this film is one that uh, coming into it, I I had expectations. Uh, because funny enough, while while I stand by my claim that I'm not especially familiar with Elizabeth Moss's uh, acting career, uh, I think prior to the beginning of this event month, I'd only really seen her in uh, Jordan Peele's uh, Us in a very small role. Uh, so I, I haven't I haven't even touched Mad Men, which again uh, Kyle is a huge fan of. Uh, he's been trying to get me to watch that for a while. So um, I'm becoming a believer, though. I'll just say that much, but. Um, this film, The Square, uh, actually was recommended to me uh, by my brother Matt, uh, who has been on Catching Up on Cinema numerous times. Uh, he has a couple of podcasts of his own, if you're interested in checking those out. Um, one is called The Hollywood Brunettes, which is about wrestling, uh, the world of professional wrestling. So if that uh, suits your fancy, then you know go with that. Um, but then he also has one called Couch Co-op, uh, which is about video, video games uh, in the modern age um, and in in adulthood. Uh, the the struggle that is trying to keep up with your friends and your gaming habit as an adult with like real life adult stuff going on. But um, my brother had actually recommended this movie to me well before we we started Elizabeth Moss Month, before we started the month of Moss. Um, and a huge reason for it was because of the, the actual uh, leading star, like the the actual headliner of the cast in this film, and that would be Danish actor Clay's Bang. Uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I don't know how my brother found out about this guy, but um, he he is super up on him. Uh, he's been kind of, like in, in sports terms, he's, he was like, I don't know, his number one draft pick, I guess. Like he, he has very high hopes for Clay's Bang as a... Uh, internationally acclaimed actor not not just a, a danish commodity um and in looking at the fellow's filmography uh prior to recording i noticed that no he does not have 
uh, that much going for him in terms of like international appeal for for a dumb American like myself. Like his filmography is mostly localized in Scandinavia and re- in the region of Scandinavia and Denmark and whatnot. But um, he has a couple of minor international films in the form of like The Girl in the Spider's Web, which I don't know how many people even remember that that even happened. Um, that that would of course be the the forgotten sequel to the the girl with the dragon tattoo, um, the American sequel to the girl with the dragon tattoo. That is, uh, however, uh, very important to note is that I see in 2022 uh, he's paired up with Robert Eggers uh, for a project called The Northman. And uh, if you're not familiar with Robert Eggers uh, and you're listening to a movie podcast, how dare you? Um, this would, of course, be the fellow that did uh, The Witch and The Lighthouse, both of which are uh, incredible, critically acclaimed films. I've only seen uh, The Witch, but uh, Kyle speaks very highly of The Lighthouse. So as far as I can tell, uh, Robert Eggers is basically like a, I don't know, can't miss. He's, he's in his can't miss period uh, as a director. So uh, Clay Spang being paired up with him... Uh, probably is a very very good sign for bigger and better things uh, in his career but uh, anyway back to the square uh, so again my brother had recommended this film to both Kyle and I and I, I certainly hope that Kyle uh, checks this out um, independent of the show uh, because I I was quite taken with it I, I enjoyed my time with it all <laughs> two hours and 30 fucking minutes of it uh, it's a long one um, but I, I felt that it was thematically very rich, um, in some ways, perhaps too much so. Um, but I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So um, normally Kyle would give us our, our plot summary, um, but being as he's not here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give myself a little bit of a break and actually just head straight to IMDb uh, to read the plot summary, which is kind of funny, actually, because I went into this film completely blind. Um, I had the poster art, and the name of two actors. I, I knew Elizabeth Moss was in it, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it this month. And I know that my brother had recommended to me largely because of Clay Spang's presence in it. Um, and then I saw the poster art, which if you look at the international poster art for it, it's horrendous. Um, it's, it's, it's truly awful. Like the image that they have up on the IMDb page is the one I'm referencing. And basically it's, a, uh, it's an image, it's a still taken directly from, I guess, the the most marketable and most noteworthy sequence in the film however that 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 sequence is very much an anomaly in in the in the aesthetic and the texture of the rest of the film such that it's it's a very confusing image um it's not one that myself as if i was in charge of marketing i would put forward as my my lead foot but you know that's not my job i'm hopefully somebody hopefully somebody got paid to do this but um the photoshop job though um that i'm referencing here with the the awfulness of this image comes in the form of uh, both both elizabeth moss and clay's bang um being kind of slipped into the image um both only one of these actors was present for this scene in the in the actual film elizabeth moss was not here uh, for she wasn't present during the scene in the actual film so this is very obviously a still of her taken from the opening scene of the movie about two hours preceding the sequence in the film um, and just the the matching of the lighting and her her expression in particular just looks 
just looks wrong. And even Clay's Bang, who actually was present during that scene, um, is in the wrong attire. He looks totally out of place, and his facial expression doesn't match the tone of the room. Um, but what's funny about this this plot description, though, uh, is that, like I said, I actually went into this film entirely blind. All I knew was a couple of people who were in it uh, and the title. Uh, so this this reading you're about to receive uh, of the pl- the official plot summary uh, is the first time I'll be reading it. So may- maybe uh, maybe my my understanding of what the film was actually about uh, is about to get tossed out the window. So uh, fingers crossed. Uh, so here we go. Plot summary for the square. A prestigious Stockholm Museum's chief art curator finds himself in times of both professional and personal crisis as he attempts to set up a controversial new exhibit. Uh, that is that is very direct, but yes, that that is indeed quite accurate. Um, so, being as I'm I'm all alone in here, uh, I'm not going to speak at length about this film. I'm not, I'm not going to try to do a beat by beat review of this as we typically do here at Catching Up on Cinema. Um, but I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue this game of keep talking and nobody explodes and hope for the best. So as I, as I kind of gave away pretty early on, I quite enjoyed this film. Uh, if I had any sort of complaint to issue about it, it would be the length, obviously. Um, two and a half hours is, is quite the hefty package. Um, but more than that, it's, I mean, I don't have anything against long movies, like there, but there's a time and a place. And I feel like, while this film is incredibly dense and thematically rich, I feel like maybe maybe they jammed a, just a little bit too much in there, such that some of the points that I found myself really really wanting to like just leap into and like just like live in and and really ponder on, um, maybe got weakened or diluted just a little bit by there just being just a little bit too much noise just a, f- a few too many swerves here and there where it's just like oh b- but i was having a lot of fun thinking about that why why are you asking me to think about this now um but yeah i feel like a lot of this film uh a lot of the the themes in it have to do with just humanity in general um there's a lot of things that seem like they're directed at the maybe Scandinavian or the, just the Swedish character in general. Um, there's, there's a lot of themes of, of isolation, like existing as a collective and in isolation at the same time. Um, and this all comes back to the, the title of the film, which I'll, I'll spoil for you. Um, it's in reference to the art exhibit, uh, which serves as the title of the film. It's called The Square. Uh, it's from a artist that goes by the name of Lola Arias, uh, who I believe is South American, um, and Christian, uh, who is portrayed by Clay Spang. Uh, he's basically the museum curator um, for a, a museum in Sweden that is prepping for the arrival of this art exhibit. And uh, part of his story involves finding a way to promote the square, but um we're shown very early on what the square is and literally it's it's just a a chunk of ground um the form of like laid lane bricks um with with a square of of lighting laid down in it so it's literally just a square in the ground um but the artist statement uh refers to the square as uh here i'll actually just read the quote uh the square is a sanctuary of trust and caring 
Within it, we all share equal rights and obligations. So it's a very uh, optimistic outlook. Uh, it's, it's almost like a, it's supposed to be a safe haven of sorts. It's supposed to be a place where I think even Clay Bang's character um, says that the idea is that while, while we're all existing in this like six by six block of the square, um, we attend to each other unflinchingly like out of obligation because that that's just what you do when you're existing in the square so it's a very idealized outlook on life and society um and this movie goes to great lengths to to speak about society um and the very strange nature of it how it's by its very nature it, it, parts of it feel contrary to human nature um by the way this film is absolutely gorgeous um, there's quite a few really amazing shots in it. Uh, some of the camera movements are are deftly constructed. Um, there's there's a few driving scenes that you can tell they just had the the camera like on a some sort of swivel in the passenger seat, such that the the blocking of the scenes a little funny because there's a scene where Clay's Bang is driving around and he has an associate with him, and it's just two fellas in a car, and for some reason the one guy's in the back seat. And for the, the cinematography, for the choreography, the camera work, it's almost like a necessity that that, that guy be placed in the back seat so the camera movement can, can have the right smoothness to it. Otherwise, it would be like a, a flip back and forth at a, at a very strange and awkward angle. So it, it feels a little awkward and artificial, but uh, it, it worked. But um, in particular, there's, there's a lot of motifs of uh, staircases. Um, towards the end of the film there's a shot ascending a staircase that it feels like an optical illusion i'm not entirely certain how it was constructed i could have been as simple as just some sort of camera rig that was um moving in perfect harmony with the actors or something while whilst ascending the staircase or it literally or literally could have been an optical illusion either way it's it's really interesting to look at but um yeah, the the square situation, the idea of this this artificial space serving as as the place where we can best attend to each other. It's a it's a theme that's revisited numerous times in the film. And towards the end, like maybe it was because things got a little bit muddled. I'm not entirely certain. Um, I was starting to play around with this idea of um, some measure of like artifice or extenuating circumstances being like in in modern society anyway like a necessary step uh to forming true true bonds and and forcing action on the part of people because one thing that they establish numerous times in the film is that uh people people kind of maneuver through through the world in their daily life in in like a, a city in a little bit of a bubble like there's there's many shots of human beings in the film uh existing in groups but entirely separate from each other and this is a phenomenon that any any modern person can witness just by i don't know sitting in a public space and just observing the people around them and how they carry themselves so it's just like we're all together but we're all separate at the same time so it's done through simple things like people uh, walking while looking in their phone. Um, and there's quite a bit of that going on in the background of a lot of scenes in the film. But um, one thing that they really 
put a lot of love and care into is the sound design for this film uh, because there's this recurring motif where I think what the film was trying to say is that as much as we'd all like to pretend that we're all living in our little bubble that we we all have privacy we really don't because <laughs> uh, there's so many instances of ambient noise bleeding into what are supposed to be really intimate circumstances like characters will be trying to have very intimate conversations they'll, they'll just be a deluge of just noise just human noises just human beings are very very noisy when you really get down to it and and just whether it be crowd noise or in one instance there's a scene where there's an art installation that is continually creaking and i don't know if it was like an installation that was out of scene or something like like just out of frame but there's this horrible crashing sound that happens every once in a while that just completely ruins any sense of intimacy uh that that could possibly exist in that particular conversation it's it's kind of incredible but um there are a lot of instances of the film kind of training its eye on people that are kind of on the the outskirts of society um and i i don't actually know this for a fact but if i had to guess um, I would imagine that a lot of Scandinavian countries, Sweden included, maybe have slightly homogenized populations. Um, and this is why I was getting at when I mentioned the, the character of the Swedish people, um, because um, I'm just going to spoil it. They're, the scene that's featured on the poster is a scene that features an actor named uh, Terry Notari, uh, who is American, uh, who is kind of like a, a captain of, of the uh the performance slash motion capture um, school uh, of acting, um, much like uh, Andy Serkis or any of his cohorts. Um, if you look at this fellow's IMDb, uh, you'll find he's portrayed many of our most beloved uh, CGI motion captured figures in, in recent history, uh, such as King Kong in Skull Island um, and Groot, uh, from the MCU films, among countless others. Uh, so this guy, much like, I guess, uh, Andy Serkis and uh, Rick Baker to some extent, Rick Rick Baker was always known to have a, a fascination with apes, uh, gorillas in particular. Uh, Terry Notari also seems to have a, a similar affinity, although in his case, uh, I'm, I mean, Rick Baker did portray King Kong in, in that 1976 film, uh, but in Terry Notari's case, he, he is known for his portrayals of ape-like characters and whatnot. But um, the sequence that's featured on the poster involves him, Terry Notari, um, as a, like a performance artist. Uh, so he's he's doing, he's doing, he's like a living art exhibit, and he parades into a, in a very expensive looking banquet hall with you know presumably people donators and whatnot uh to the museum um and he embodies a alpha like gorilla um basically and he is completely at odds with anybody who who stands out among the crowd pretty much anybody who has any sort of reaction to him he lashes out at and he hoots and he hollers at them. In some cases, he physically accosts them, and he either chases them out of the room or tries to, at some at one point, even physically dominate them. But the one thing that really stands out in this scene, um, and actually I did read somewhere uh, that somebody thought that uh, 
this sequence in isolation could have been a very, very good short film. Um, part of me wants to say could have potentially been stronger because a lot of the themes that uh, jumped out at me the most came from this sequence. But then again, part of that was bolstered by the, the scenes that bookended this one as well. But um, what jumped out at me here um, was the behavior of all the people in the room. Uh, because when he comes into the room, it's preceded by an announcement on like a PA saying uh, it has a spiel about um, existing in the jungle or in, or in the wild, essentially. And the notion of being part of a herd and how existing part of existing in a herd, part of the comfort that comes from existing in a herd is that you can kind of slip into it. It's it's your safety comes from not standing out because the moment you stand out from that crowd, there's that expression, uh, the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. Uh, it's kind of like that where it's like, if you, if you break off from the herd, if you're a straggler of some sort, predators will naturally key in on that one. You're, you're the one who's going to get got. Um, and that dynamic translates so beautifully into the, the way this scene is played out where he, he comes in and initially there's a lot of titters and giggles because it's like, what's this strange ape man doing here? Like he's, he's really invested in the role. Like he's, he's entirely in gorilla mode. There's, there's no swaying him. He's not going to break character no matter what. Um, but initially he's met with like fascination and people are kind of giggling at, at the notion of an ape man, you know, like walking through this expensive banquet hall um, but as things intensify and his behavior becomes more aggressive and, and violent at some point, um, you'll notice that everybody kind of like just bows their head and just it puts their blinders on. It's just like one of those things where it, if you've ever rode public transportation and you've ever had just, you know, an awful human being come on there that, that behaves in a fashion that's out of step with the, with the rest of the community You've witnessed this phenomenon. I have participated in this phenomenon where you're you're paralyzed. It's like you you don't have the ability to to act because all the societal norms have been imparted onto you, at least in Seattle, um, which I think is actually very fitting and probably part of why my brother wanted me to watch this because um, I don't know if it's still the case, but uh, the region of Seattle that I'm that I was raised in is very near to what what once was kind of like a, a Scandinavian nerve nerve center um, in Seattle. Uh, we, I don't, again, I don't know if this is still the case. We've had a huge, we've had quite a few transplants arrive in the past few decades or so. So the, I don't know what the demographics are like these days, but um, we at one point did have a gigantic Scandinavian population here. And in general, the Pacific Northwest and Seattle in particular, uh, our character is kind of frowned upon by the rest of the nation, by the rest of the United States, uh, as being somewhat chilly. Uh, we have a phenomenon here that, that's referred to as the Seattle freeze, and I, I will freely admit I have, I have participated in this. And generally what it is is it's a situation where a lot of people who aren't really familiar with the the societal mores and, uh, and norms out here is they, they're much more genuine and affable. Uh, than your typical Seattleite, and they'll they'll meet you. They'll want to get to know you better. They'll want to go out for drinks. They'll want to hang out. They'll want to be your buddy. 
Um, and just, I don't know exactly where this comes from, but a, a lot of Seattle folk, myself included, will we'll smile, we'll say, yeah, that sounds great. And we'll have absolutely no desire to, to get to know you any better than surface level. It's just like, I will be perfectly kind to you every time I have to see you. But beyond that, I'm really not going to go to the trouble to try much harder than that to include you in, in my life. Um, so this is just, this is largely me projecting, I guess. I mean, I can only view the world through the lens that I'm given. But um, I want to say my brother, upon viewing this film, probably looked inward and was like, oh, man, like these Swedes are a lot like us Seattle folk. <laughs> but yeah, uh, during all of his gorilla antics in this banquet hall, Everybody just is staring at their plate, not moving, just kind of, you can almost hear them whispering to themselves, just like, just, just hold tight. He'll go away eventually. He'll leave me alone eventually. And then we can go back to whatever fucking dinner we're going to have tonight. Um, but there's a turning point in that, in that sequence where he, uh, he grabs a, he grabs hold of a woman and he's kind of harassing her for a good long while. Oh, prior to that, um, Dominic West is in this film as well, um, and this was actually a point that I, I don't want to gloss over, so I'm glad I'm backpedaling now. Um, so Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West are, are two non-Scandinavian actors that we have in this film. Uh, and then we also have Terry Notari, this, this gorilla man who is American. So Dominic West is British, if I remember, and Elizabeth Moss is also American. Uh, the casting of these three people in particular seems highly strategic because all of them serve to rock the boat in some fashion. Uh, Elizabeth Moss uh, <laughs> has one of the single most memorable sexual encounters I've ever seen in cinema uh, with uh, Clay Spang uh, earlier in the film. Um, and she also is one of the first faces we see in the film. Uh, she's she's like a reporter who's interviewing uh, Clay Spang's uh, curator character. Um, and she only has a handful of scenes in the film. Several of them are fairly long, though, and her contribution is quite massive. Like, even though her screen time isn't great, like like a lot of roles like that, uh, it's highly impactful, especially, especially that fucking sex scene, which I'll, I'll hopefully come back to if I can remember to. But... The point I'm getting at here is that we have three actors who do not speak the same language as anyone else in the cast who, by their very nature, probably don't have access to the same cultural norms that a lot of the other actors and characters would have. Um, and as such, in their interactions with the, all the other characters in the cast, it seems like they're they're just slightly out of step with everyone else and it, it leads to a lot of drama and tension that generally doesn't exist among all the other characters and there there does exist conflict between many of the other characters it's just a different kind of conflict it 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 never really reaches that point where it it, it turns into a legitimate drama where like a lot of the other characters have minor disputes with each other or um, Clay Spang's character has an associate, I, I think maybe in a superior in the office, that were never really fully explained what their deal is. But this lady has this little adorable, like, uh, whippet dog with her that um, every time she shows up, he just he just rolls his eyes and he's like, this fucking lady. Like, I, I am not entirely certain what their shared history is supposed to be. But the point I'm trying to get at here is that the two of them seem to have a legitimate beef with each other. 
neither of them ever raises their voice or has any legitimate like butting heads moment in the movie they keep it very very civil that's not the case with with elizabeth moss and dominic west and terry notari Uh, in dominic west's case um when terry notari is going on his his parade through the banquet hall in his guerrilla mode um, he starts to kind of poke and prod at Dominic West. And unlike some of the other people that he'd done that to earlier in the sequence, uh, Dominic West, like, vo- he verbalizes at him. He looks him dead in the eye. He kind of try- he, he kind of tries to push back a little bit. And in doing so, it, it causes it causes a equal response, a greater response, in fact. Uh, such that eventually he gets like physically pushed and and chased out of the room by a hooting uh, shirtless Terry Notari, um, and I want to say that that was symbolic of him being, you know, a foreign element. Like, of course, of course, the non-Swede in the room would be the guy who would, you know, raise his voice and like try to push back, while whilst everyone else just kind of puts their head down and, much like a, a herd of I don't know gazelle or whatever, pick your animal or whatever. Um, all kind of fall into the same behavior pattern. He's he's the one foreign element that, of course, gets chased out of the room. But um, coming back to what I was saying about uh, Terry Notari uh, assaulting this woman, he's, like, fondling her, and she's frozen. Like, he's just kind of playing with her hair at first, but she starts to quietly ask for help. And much like similar circumstances we saw earlier in the film, uh, help is not something that, when verbalized gets a actual response immediately uh it there's 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 a, a thought process that goes into i guess uh people receiving that auditory information and then acting upon it because she repeatedly asked for help and we don't even hear movement in the room like the the camera angle is pretty focused on the two players in that moment but point is we have a woman a very helpless looking woman being handled by a really buff dude um and she keeps asking for help and we don't even hear anyone make a move let alone raise their voice and say hey cut it out or anything like that Uh, it's not until she's grabbed by her hair and and drugged to the floor and like he almost forces himself on her it's like it doesn't a, a response is not prompted until it gets that far but once we get there uh, there's there's like an animalistic response to it where an an older gentleman again in in like evening attire like in a full suit uh, pushes him off of her and uh, starts like punching him in the thighs and stuff uh, real real savage just like un unintelligent violence just like there this is this is an intelligent violence this is just a, a an old man's primal response to seeing something truly wrong and and just unleashing hell on some guy on the floor um but it's not until that one guy snaps that the entire room explodes and we don't really get to see all the detail of the scene but just like everybody jumps on this guy and starts wailing on him um and we see that phenomenon manifest a few times in the movie where it's it's just like there's a there's a threshold there's some sort of barrier that has to be crossed um to to prompt a true honest response it may not be a healthy response may not be civil may not be intelligent but it's it's a response of some sort um but yeah that that's a theme that gets visited several times in the film where it's it's interesting to see the camera 
be transfixed on a lot of characters like beggars in particular um homeless people uh people just asking for money posted out in front of businesses and stuff and again this is something that i'm sure my brother uh keyed in on as uh seattle does have a homeless problem uh, it is something that's unavoidable but it's something that continues to exist and much like the characters in this film and presumably the country of sweden <laughs> um we all just kind of keep our heads up and and keep those images in the periphery and uh, keep on walking past it um true true honest responses to to injustices like that really sad images like that are are few and far between um and actually now that i mentioned that the the cinematography in this movie one thing that i noticed that felt highly intentional is that a lot of uh a lot of characters and action occur just just out of frame uh, it's it's a recurring thing that it it's so unusual that it had to be intentional um and it does it does happen enough times that it's like yeah they they knew what they're doing i'm not entirely sure exactly what's supposed to mean but maybe as i'm talking here i'm figuring it out uh because yeah there's a lot of instances where it is kind of similar to to being that that scared person on the bus who just wants that that person that may as well be akin to a howler monkey to just fucking go away and you know one response to that would be to stand up and just straight up say that like hey you're you're really causing me a lot of anxiety everybody else here is in agreement with me cut it out or you can just keep your head down and hope for the best um part part of that like i think does play into the cinematography where it's like there there are these these awful things that we don't really it's very very easy to just go about your life and and not let those things in all you have to do is just cock your head just slightly or maybe not look down as much as as you normally would and then those images are i mean you're you're going to be aware of them to some extent but they're just out of your peripheral vision like they're they're just out of sight and out of mind to enough for you to get to where you're going um, there's a lot of that going on where like uh, a character's sound will precede their their uh, their visual element entering the frame or something um, and it happens over and over and over again it's a very interesting concept but um going back to the performances uh clay's bang is truly exceptional in this film um he I believe he's a polyglot. I would imagine he speaks his native Danish, but uh, it seems to be just fine at Swedish. And uh, he does speak a fair amount of English in this as well, um, opposite Elizabeth Moss primarily. Uh, <laughs> from a visual standpoint, he makes me think of like uh, Damien Bashir mixed with Rupert Everett, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, the Rupert Everett comes from his accent, which sounds like a he his English sounds very british english to my ears um and his uh his hairline feels very rupert everett ish in this um but he's he's very exceptional um he is asked to do quite a bit in this film um, because he is a highly dislikable character in a lot of ways one of the one of the earlier things we get to see is him um delivering a speech like we see him rehearsing in a bathroom and then the other shoe drops because we see that oh uh the he actually engineered a part of his speech um to feel spontaneous 
um, basically involves uh, like a, an intrusion and an excuse for him to take the prop that is his already pre-memorized speech that he's pretending to read and then fold it into his coat pocket and say, oh, let me go off, the, let me go off script here, folks. Um, it's, it's a tactic. It's a, it's a strategy. Uh, for ingratiating yourself to a crowd where it's like, oh, now I, now I got you with a joke. Now I can show you my true self, even though my supposed true self is still scripted. Um, and this is something that's revisited several times in the film, um, probably most strongly in the form of him um, having a very easy opportunity to issue a, like the simplest of apologies to this fucking beast of a kid by the way uh there's a kid who has beef with him at some point in the movie uh who who tells him straight up he's going to make chaos with you i think is how he phrases it and actually if you really think about it, he he did so indirectly but um i mean as far as i recall he was forced to resign his job by the end of the film so yes that boy did indeed visit chaos upon him but that kid is a fucking beast like he if he has beef with you he is he's a pit bull he's not gonna let go um, but the kid wants an apology and he, he like shows up at his house and he's like, I need you to apologize to me. He's not even asking for more than that. And for whatever fucking reason, it was frustrating the hell out of me. He just wouldn't say sorry, not even in like a, a shitty way. Like he just wouldn't do it. And I was like, dude, all you gotta do is say I'm sorry. But, um, the scene that I'm getting at though, that, that best exemplifies some of the, the ugliest aspects of his character is that we get this long drawn out sequence where he's like thinking about being the bigger man. He's thinking about apologizing to the kid who, by the way, he like knocked down the stairs and probably caused, you know, serious head trauma to. And we, we get to see very similar to that banquet hall sequence, the, the brutally honest thought process that, that he goes through where he continually, dips in and out of his apartment while he hears this this kid at the bottom of the stairs repeatedly saying help me and it takes like presumably a half an hour or an hour for him to actually get up and do anything about it and by the time he does the kid's gone and it's like oh well shit i probably i sh probably should have been on top of that yeah um but after the fact after he knocked the kid down the stairs after he had the perfect op opportunity to apologize um, the thing that makes him into a true shit heel is that he issues a long, drawn-out, rambling apology via cell phone video. Um, and the the absolute icing on the cake, which is it's a darkly comedic beat, is that we see him saying these words, and it's all so eloquent. And it, it is like, it's a very adult response. It's like a very measured intellectual response to what should have, all it needed to be was like a pat on the shoulder and like, hey, I'm sorry I wronged you, kid. I, I was in the wrong. I'm terribly sorry. Um, but he's he's delivering like <laughs> fucking speech on the cell phone video. But the, the dark comedic icing on the top is uh, we cut to after a good solid two minutes of him rambling and speechifying about the the problems of classism and society and stuff. Um, nothing that would be relevant to a little boy who's just straight up angry at you for a, a personal misdeed. Um we cut to the reverse angle and we see that the entire time he's looking at himself while he's recording this video. Um, and it's, it shows, you know, vanity and it shows that this, this artificial barrier is empowering to some degree. It's like by 
I mean, we, I'm sure most people listening to this have experienced this where you, it's so much easier to send a text than, than call somebody directly. Um, it's so much easier to order something through internet, through an internet service than to pick it up on your own. Having some sort of buffer, uh, is empowering. Um, and it, it creates, it creates like really ugly artificial it creates a really like artificial way of living that's that's probably really unhealthy but it was a really interesting moment in the film uh, again this film is incredibly dense so there's a lot of stuff i'm i'm totally going to gloss over but um i thought that moment in particular was really interesting that and the catalyst for his beef with that kid in general was um he got pickpocketed in the beginning of the film in the very beginning of the film uh, actually that that was a really interesting scene where um, it's a like a staged event where uh, a woman, a hysterical woman, runs at not Clay's bang, but uh, just some other random guy who's near Clay's bang, and she grabs hold of this fella and is just shrieking. Just oh, my God, her voice was horrendous. Like it was actually pissing me off. I was, I was like, "Lady, you need to get a grip." Uh, she's like screaming that some guy's coming to kill her. He's gonna kill all of us. He's he's coming to kill me. And she's hysterical, and this guy that she's shaking, uh, that she's grabbed hold of, uh, looks to Clay's bang, who just happens to be nearby, and says, "Hey, buddy, like trouble's coming our way. Are you gonna? Are you in it with me? I need your help. Are you in it with me?" And they they have a moment, like they they actually form a really true human connection. Um, and the next thing that happens is the guy that she presumably thinks is trying to kill her runs up, and they like shove him they 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 block his path from getting to her and then the guy just abruptly turns turns around and leaves um and then clay's bang has this like exasperate like they're both like their hearts are both pounding and they're both out of breath because you know adrenaline's a bitch um and they both have this moment that (laughs) it's almost like that seattle freeze moment where it's like the way they're talking to each other uh, it's it's very honest and passionate where it's like wow that was that was some crazy shit that just happened right i mean man that was nuts and it that's it's like this situation that's like you know like this is a really true honest connection that at the end of it they both just kind of pause and they're like well anyway and then they just part ways um i'm not i'm not entirely sure which among uh those three players actually stole clay's bang stuff but uh, I just thought it was interesting that those particular circumstances, this this highly unusual circumstance of having uh, there be an imminent threat, and then somebody asking for assistance in in a you know a hurried, panicked fashion, and then two people stand strong in the face of potential you know harm or danger. Um, it was interesting to see what what looked like the beginning of like a friendship or something come from that. Um, very similar to that banquet hall sequence where it was it was when that that old man uh jumped on the gorilla man it wasn't until he did that that everybody became kind of unified um and that that was one theme that i i was struggling to like pin down a hundred percent but uh towards the very end of the film uh clay's bangs character uh goes to a cheerleading meet for his daughters and it's unmistakable the, the the camera angle and the mat uh, that all the cheerleaders are performing on. You can clearly see a very similar 
uh, white square drawn on the mat. So it's, it's meant to establish a parallel between that concept um, and, and the, the four exercises and stuff, uh, four routine or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it got me thinking about the idea of, uh, I don't know, artifice or some, some form of extenuating circumstances being maybe a necessary component in this day and age uh, to to create unity, I guess. Like, it's always, I don't know if there's a, a really good quote for it. I wish I knew. But, I mean, a concept that was, again, actually funny, a callback to the Watchmen. Uh, if you've ever read the comic of the Watchmen, uh, spoiler alert, there's a squid. It's a fake squid, but it's a squid. Um, the idea in that movie is that in order to prevent humanity from destroying itself, uh, it, it needs to, we, we need a, a singular opponent. We all need to be unified against a singular threat um, instead of instead of each other. Uh, so the idea was, let's pretend that there's an alien out there that wants to kill us. So instead of all of our individual nations be training their guns on each other, uh, we can train our guns on the sky uh, towards aliens that technically don't exist. But as long as the guns are pointed up there, they're not pointed at our neighbors. Um, so it got me wondering about that as a concept where it's like, in in the square like like i said the the artist statement was that uh to quote the square is a sanctuary of trust and caring when within it we all share equal rights and obligations it's just an agreement it's just a concept uh, but in the con but in that context like in the cheerleading meet when we see all the people behaving in concert like going through a choreography doing a routine everybody's performing in harmony everybody's looking out for each other we even have like referees running out there to prevent people from cracking their fucking heads open and stuff um but again it's a it's an event it's it's a it's an athletic competition it's a game of some sort it's something that we as humans engineered uh imposed upon ourselves um, and I guess that's maybe out of step with what we saw in the form of the gorilla man where, where he's, he's out of harmony with the rest of humanity, uh, or per perhaps he represents the truest form of humanity. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely sure where I'm going with that, but I thought it was an interesting concept. Uh, it'd be fun if I could talk to my brother about this. If he even remembers, I don't even know how long ago he watched this movie, but um, so Elizabeth Moss, I uh, should definitely focus on her being as uh, it's the month of Moss. Uh, she's, again, only in a handful of scenes. Uh, she's in, I believe, the first scene of the film. Uh, it's a really uncomfortable interview between her and Clay's bang, uh, but it feels very naturalistic. Apparently, uh, she had to go through like some really extreme improvisation uh, during the filming of this film. Like She had to just like live in scenes for hours at a time uh, so I'm guessing that was very stressful uh, both her and Dominic West apparently struggled for a little bit uh, with the director being you know from Sweden uh, being you know not probably communication may have been an issue or something but uh, her character is really interesting uh, because I think it was a deliberate choice to have an American actress uh, in this role as we Americans are known to be I don't know <laughs> uh, ugly Americans went overseas and uh, I don't know if we have a reputation for being bullheaded or forthright but um, 
I've oftentimes thought of our, our characters being that, especially as compared to some other nations. But um, definitely she sticks out uh, among any crowd that she's placed in. Um, but she kind of appears again in the narrative uh, immediately following a, a really raucous uh, techno party that the, the museum staff throw where we get this extended like at least three minute sequence of just like mostly middle aged muse- museum employees uh, just like dancing their hearts out to this techno music, which is really interesting because, again, it doesn't really fit the character uh, or the behavior of most of these characters throughout the film. Uh, it sticks out, but at the same time, it's like, maybe that's maybe that's what it takes to exist in this kind of like, I don't know, like harmonious, kind of slightly stiff way of living where it's like every once in a while, man, you just, you just got a techno. You just got, you just got to go to the techno hall. You just got to bang your head for half an hour and then, uh, yeah, go back to work and <laughs> put on your suit, go back to work. But every once in a while, man, you just got to get out. You just got a techno. Um, but she made, she meets up with Clay Spang and she is so fucking awkward. And Elizabeth Moss seems to have a true gift for, for embracing that, for really diving headfirst into portraying those kinds of roles, because um, she there's a there's a really fascinating sequence in the film where a uh, a lecture or an interview, like a public interview, is interrupted by uh, someone in the audience that uh, has Tourette's, um, and everybody in the room is just trying their best to be accommodating and like. All credit to them. They actually do a pretty good job, but there's only a handful of instances of people like reacting harshly to it. Um, but it's, I think it's symbolic of just just how much like it's almost like a symphony, I guess, where it's like all it takes is one one instrument to be out of tune or out of sync with the rest of the performers, and it it's discordant. Like it really creates a, it really sticks out. Um, because this this lecture, this interview is basically like scrapped. Like they basically can't progress because this this one individual is so disruptive, and it's not it's not their fault at all. They're just trying to they're legitimately fascinated in what this person has to say. They're just they have a condition and it's causing outbursts. But it's one of those things where it's I think the film is trying to draw attention to what 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 being an outlier what what being out of step with a a largely homogenized society what what that how alienating that can be like just how awful that feeling can be and i think that's why we have a lot of shots kind of training their eye on uh on like the homeless and the and the beggars uh in the streets of sweden um in fact there's a really humanizing sequence where uh there's clay's bang actually tries to like treat one of like uh, one beggar well um only to only to discover that oh she's she's just she's human just like me and that's for whatever reason slightly disappointing (laughs) um but elizabeth moss has this moment where she's trying to do like a callback joke like she's trying to joke about the guy with tourette's uh from that lecture and both our reaction as the audience and Clay's bang were just like, huh? But then she keeps doing it, and it's just it just keeps getting worse. Uh, but then what's really goofy about it is that he he's waiting to use the restroom while she's doing this, 
And he goes into the restroom, and we have this moment where he's, again, reflection. He's looking at himself in the mirror. By the way, there's a lot of cinematography. There's a lot of shots dedicated to Clay Spang. Um, clearly, some sort of theming involving him being isolated uh, because the framing is very deliberate. Um, but anyway, that that's a whole nother can of worms. But he looks at himself in the mirror, and he says, I am not going to sleep with her. Spoiler alert, he sleeps with her. But... Um, I do not know why she has an ape. It looked like a chimp. It had different hair than I'm used to seeing, but it she has she has a primate in her hotel. Not entirely sure what that was about. Uh, it is never verbally addressed in the film. Um, it is seen in more than one scene in the film, so I I I'm trying to think that maybe that actually exists or what I don't think it was imagined, but it's never verbally addressed in the film. So uh, that's one theme. That's one motif that I have no fucking clue what that's supposed to mean. But um, again, artifice informing, um, informing relationships. Uh, what's really fascinating about the sex scene is that, we just see Clay's bang like hanging out. He's just sitting on her bed and she's not present. And then out of nowhere, Elizabeth Moss steps in the frame and she just like puts her hands on her hips and she's like in, in like a nighty and stuff. And she's just like, well, okay then. And he doesn't even say anything. He just starts taking off his boots. And then she just like steps to the back of the room and take, takes off her panties. And it's just like, it's this weird like ritual, but, but it's, it has to be observed otherwise we can't do the thing and just the blocking of everything feels so stiff and artificial that it, it's comical but it it feels very honest in a lot of ways uh, thankfully this is not anything i've ever had to experience firsthand thankfully um but yeah we get to see him in bed uh and in all detail just like putting a, a condom on under the covers and like she's she's very like awkwardly attentive or like he he hands her like the the wrapper or the condom she's like oh oh i'll get that and it's like but she's just like locked eyes with him waiting for him to put on this condom and apparently he's having trouble with it because he's he's not looking at what he's doing he's doing it all underneath the covers um and she's just like waiting waiting and we the audience are just like we're waiting waiting and then he like has to look at her directly in the eyes and tell her okay it is now on and she's like it is isn't it and he's like yes it is let us fuck <laughs> and then the the choice of camera angle and the and the blocking of the two of them going at it is uh i mean this is a this is a strength as as an actor or an actress uh, allowing yourself to be made made to look not so great on camera is something that is a is a huge benefit for any actor not everybody like steven seagal is not willing to make <laughs> to be made to look bad on camera. Elizabeth Moss has no qualms about being made to look not so great on camera, and the the angle and uh, the blocking of her scene while she's on top is she's just made to look just awful. <laughs> it's just like massively unappealing. And at some point, the the lensing like they they kind of like blur her a little bit, or like it's meant to be from Clay Bang's perspective. So it's like he's just kind of like tuning it out like like he's he just gave up on looking at her and by the way she's like trying to lock eyes with him which is not creepy at all um and he even begins to like smile and it's not it's not like an ecstatic smile it's like i don't even know what we're doing anymore but sure 
Um, but then we get the reverse of that where he's he's on her uh, from behind, and uh, her facial acting here is really incredible. Where she she's making these faces where you can tell it's like she's not really enjoying it. Like like he he keeps grabbing her shoulder, and we, you can tell that he's like probably grabbing her a little bit too hard and then he's probably off rhythm too because like her face is not making she's not making good faces uh and then by the time he's done like she just the the timing of her facial expression she's just like you know it's like oh she she wasn't you guys aren't on the same page like she she's got like 20 minutes more in her (laughs) just like you better hang out there bud like like just because you're done doesn't mean it's all done but and then we have this this incredibly awkward exchange where she is volunteering to take the condom from him and deposit it in the garbage and he he like <laughs> he's like fucking Spiegel with the ring like he just will not give it up and without without actually verbalizing it it's implied that she thinks that he he doesn't want her to take his seed because he doesn't know what she'll do with it. <laughs> um, and it needs to be said, he is a museum curator. He is a high society type. So I guess maybe he, maybe he does have fears about that stuff. But it's like, yeah, eventually he, he does. They, they, have a, they play tug of war with the condom. Uh, I was really glad that we didn't descend into Farrelly Brothers territory with uh, the wrong person letting go of that thing at the wrong time and having, you know, fluids uh, go all over the room. Uh, thankfully, we're spared that. But uh, yeah, she she does get her way and she puts it in the garbage. But then the aftermath of the scene is is her uh, trying to have a conversation with him and about what like what they shared, like they were physically intimate and now she's emotionally invested in him. Uh, she's not entirely sure if that was wise or not, but she's trying to be honest and explore those feelings and get a feel for where he's at with things. And the whole time during this conversation, even the way the shots are framed, there's this art installation behind her uh, that's basically a series of wood and metal chairs piled up on each other, like very precariously, and they rock back and forth slightly. And I think the installation has a speaker system built into it because it makes this loud creaking noise, like on, like at a very steady rhythm, and it's so intrusive to this very intimate conversation. He's so cold to her, um, which again I want to say is maybe a critique on the Swedish character, where he he is he is a he is super cold. Like he gives her the cold shoulder and then some. Um, but she's like trying to be open and honest with him and, and actually engage with him and they don't really get anywhere. It's kind of like a pointless back and forth that's, that's interrupted by these hilarious uh, audio intrusions in the form of the creaking and then some other installation that literally sounds like like a, I don't know, a chest of drawers falling onto a hardwood floor every five minutes or something. But um, that's largely the extent of her role in the film. Uh, is the sex sequence and a few other uh, attempts to break through his barriers uh, doesn't exactly go all, all that well. But like I said, there, there's there's some sort of theme going on here about human connection and how precarious and truly difficult it can be sometimes to, to honestly engage with humans as humans. Um, and we do see every once in a while that it's like, you know... We, 
even characters like Clay Spang's character, Christian, like he's very much capable of it. It's just it, there's a time and a place apparently, and yet you can't help but feel like as the viewer that's like if we were all better people like like if we all did exist in a giant square then we probably wouldn't have that problem now would we but that's truthfully not the world that we live in um there are invisible barriers separating us all and it does create tension and it does create situations where it's like you know what i i i and everyone else in this room knows what the correct thing to do is and yet, for some reason, we all keep thinking about it, and we all keep trying to intellectualize it. And by the end, by the end of that bus ride, we all we all get off without having done anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, th- there's a lot at work in this film. Um, as I said, perhaps even too much. Um, this is a movie I'll probably continue to think about, uh, and I feel like I'm wrapping up here. And yet, I feel like I've said almost nothing. Um, but yeah, Elizabeth Moss's character does have one more attempt to, <laughs> attempt uh, to enter into the film uh, in the form of her repeatedly calling him uh, throughout like the last third of the film. And as far as I know, he never actually picks up. Like he he just does that. He does the ugliest of rejections, and he just doesn't say goodbye. Doesn't give her a valid reason. He just is dismissive of her. So in a lot of ways, I guess he treats her like like a lot of those homeless beggars that he passes in the streets every day. And again, that's probably some sort of, some form of commentary that the film was trying to make. Um, I'm not entirely positive of the messaging behind this film, uh, but obviously I've, I've talked about by myself for about an hour now. So clearly there's a lot at work here. Um, and I will have to ask my brother about what he got from this because um, he was kind enough to not, spoil any of it for me he just said this is who's in it you should watch it and you know what i'm really glad that we put it on the calendar for this month because while it may not be a proper elizabeth moss month i will say this much she is i think listed first in the credits Uh, clay spang is listed after elizabeth moss and dominic west and i think terry notari uh, which is very fascinating uh, as he is most certainly the, the actor with the most screen time and our principal like leading character but if I remember right, her her name comes first in those opening credits. But um, yeah, this was a really fun one to come in totally blind, uh, especially because the movie does have several scenes of legitimate tension. Uh, the cinematography during the scene, which, uh, oh, I forgot to explain that. Uh, the reason why that little boy uh, had beef with Clay's bang uh, was because as a result of him being pickpocketed, uh, one of his co-workers... Uh, looks up like uh, he does like a find my iphone kind of thing uh, so he finds the gps marker for his phone so they use that to track down where his belongings were likely taken to and it's to like a, a apartment or a tenement building of some sort um, and there are so many buildings like there's so many like housing units in that building that they can't possibly know who actually took the items all they know is roughly that it's in that building uh, so instead of doing a little bit of detective work and maybe banging on doors or like directly confronting physically and verbally uh, whoever it was that was responsible for stealing his belongings, instead he decides to do very much the equivalent of him uh, issuing an apology via a buffer in the form of a video of uh, 
typing up a threatening letter uh, asking to have his belongings mailed back to uh, it's like a 7-Eleven near his home uh, not his actual address because that would be dumb um, and then he deposits these threatening letters in every, in every apartment in that building and then he does get his stuff back however uh, the boy's family reads the note and they just assume their their son did something wrong and so they take it out on him it's it's never exactly explained like what his his parents response was to that but you can tell this kid is fucking pissed so his parents i wouldn't be surprised if they beat him or kicked him out of the house or something so basically through his very passive uh form of action in the form of typing up just this umbrella threat to whoever any any and all who get this notice doesn't matter if it's relevant to you or not um by by doing this very passive thing uh, he really grossly affected the life of this little boy. Um, and he never really gets his comeuppance for it. Um, and again, that's probably why we're in the state of affairs that we're in. But um, yeah, that that's how he got into that predicament was by just saying like, oh, well, yeah, it'd be fine if I, you know, left a threatening letter in, in, in everybody's mailbox. No, Surely nobody's going to have any consequences that come from that. Uh, so that was an interesting catalyst, but um, while I was talking about the like ominous or fo- foreboding moments in the film, uh, that's at about the half hour mark, I believe, is uh, the cinematography and the the blocking of that sequence is really fantastic. Where his uh, his employee is waiting for him in in his car, and it's strongly implied that this neighborhood that this tenement building is located in is not exactly the ritziest part of town. Um, and they do this thing again, where there's there's a lot of activity. There's like some legitimate like threatening atmosphere going on outside of the camera's frame. Uh, so we keep cutting back and forth between Clay's bang running up and down the hallways of this uh, apartment complex, and the camera movement and the flickering flickering overhead lights and just his his fran- frantic nature as he's doing something that you can you can tell it's like it's like when i get an amazon package and i really don't want to end up like leaving the house and seeing the person delivering the stuff like i i hate that i feel that way but it's like one of those things it's like it would it would be so much better if i could just open my door and the thing would be there rather than me have to like actually see the see the hand that brought it to me um i i hope i'm not the only one that feels that way because i feel like a monster whenever i feel that way so hopefully y'all can you know empathize with me but um yeah seeing him racing up and down the halls depositing these these letters in the mail slots like you can tell he has that that rush in him where he's like i i I'm making a lot of noise doing this and I, I just want to get out of here before somebody opens the door. Like you can tell he, he does not want to, act, he doesn't actually want to get it done. Like he just wants to leave the thing, go home and then get his stuff back in the mail. And he does. Um, it's, it's really fascinating to see how that plays out. But as we're doing that, we're cutting back to his, his uh, associate in the vehicle. And there's just like people loitering around and they never like, explicitly make any threats to him but you can tell just the fact that he's in a tesla in a rough neighborhood and there's just people kind of like loitering about and like continuing to literally break break the barrier like like of his social bubble in the form of asking him to roll down his window and they were very keen on adjusting the acoustics on the soundtrack because 
Um, every time they're in that car and the windows are up, all the sound is so muffled. Um, and then when the windows come down, it's like the whole world pours into the vehicle. It's really striking. Uh, the audio design in this movie is deserving of so much praise because there's so many crowd noise moments where it's just like, yeah, humans are noisy. And there's also a lot of theming involving uh, humans as herd animals. Like very early on, there's a comedic bit where uh, Clay Spang finishes a speech and then he invites like the, the caterer to come out and tell everybody like where where the food is and uh he comes out to like read the menu and as he's halfway through reading the menu like the crowd noise like everybody's like milling about because like a speech just wrapped up everybody's like filing into the dining hall and it the noise is so oppressive and literally from a visual standpoint it's just a bunch of old farts getting up off of the staircase and walking in a general direction but the, the way they dial up the noise of that is really effective because it's just cacophonous. Um, but then the, the caterer's response to that is to just fucking raise his voice and be like, hey, I'm in the middle of doing a job here. It's like Sigourney Weaver in Galaxy Quest. It's like, I have one job on this ship. It's stupid, but I'm going to do it. So he like demands their attention. He's like, quit fucking around. I'm going to finish reading this menu and then you can eat. And they all do, but it's like it's one of those things where if if he had just given up, nobody would have noticed, nobody would have cared. Um, but you also see that like every time we cut back to these beggars in the street uh, asking for help and stuff, where it's just like everybody ignores them. And then there's even a scene where Clay's Bang is put in an awkward situation where he needs to find his daughters in a mall. Um, when we see him put in exactly the same circumstances, where he's asking for help. And nobody, nobody will give him the time of day, even though this is a father looking for his lost daughters in a public space. Um, and it gets bad to the point that literally the only person he can that he can get to acknowledge him as a fellow human being is a homeless person who he gets to watch his bags while he finds his daughters. And um, actually, now that I think about it, at the very beginning of the film, a very similar thing happened where when he first realizes his belongings were stolen from him in that pickpocketing incident, um, he asked a couple of people, like the scene isn't very long, but he just asks a couple of people, can I borrow your phone? And the scene jumps away very quickly, but I don't think he ever did get a phone from anybody. I think he just went to work after that. Um, so yeah, like legitimately getting people's attention is something that seems very, very difficult to do in the universe of, of the square. Um, but yeah, I think I'm about tapped out. Uh, I've been rambling. I'm very sorry. This is actually very, very difficult to do, uh, to, to talk to oneself. Uh, to, <laughs> um, I can't remember the Ian Malcolm quote, but it involves being a car uh, uh, by yourself, uh, talking uh, to yourself. Um, so yeah, this was uh, The Square uh, from 2017, directed by Ruben Ostlund. Uh, it gets a very strong recommend from me. Uh, the runtime is a big ask. Um, and it is very dense, uh, so you really got to be in the right frame of mind uh, to probably enjoy this one. I probably wasn't, to, to be honest, but this was my homework, so I, I powered through it. I got it done. Um, but yeah, this, of course, stars Clay's Bang, but also features Elizabeth Moss. And while she doesn't have a huge amount of screen time in this, uh, I would count this as as probably a very good role in her filmography. So... Uh, this is very much a worthwhile watch for me. 
Um, but that being said, uh, if you would like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, we also have a couple social media accounts in the form of an Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema, as well as a Twitter at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much any platform you can imagine, including Cephalopod. So fucking Google it. Uh, and that being said, thank you so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Bye.